Welcome to the Wheels Up Podcast, the resource to help business, executive, and VIP travelers stay safe on the ground and in the air. Join Executive Protection and Travel Security Specialist Troy Clayton as he shares tips on how to give yourself or those in your care a safe journey, no matter where your travels take you. Welcome back to the Wheels Up Podcast, the only podcast out there specifically designed for you, our listener. Whether you're a corporate high flyer, a person of influence, or a security industry professional wanting to know more about what's on offer and what's available in some of the specialist fields. We cover topics relating to travel safety and security, executive protection, corporate security, international risk assessments, country briefs, and health and well-being. We have expert guests from across the security, defense, and consulting sectors. I'm your host, Troy Clayton from Panoptic Solutions. And before we get into it, don't forget to go to iTunes or your podcast platform, give us a rating and leave a comment. The more stars, the easier it is for our followers to find us. And the more comments that you provide us with, it helps us better understand what it is you want to hear. Now let's get straight into it. Uh, Today's guest is a former, former Australian Army officer who I have had the pleasure of instructing as a student on the Australian Army Military Police Closed Personal Protection Course many moons ago. In fact, this guest is one of only a handful of females who has passed a rigorous course and qualified with the CPP teams. Um, Post-discharge from the full-time service with the Australian Army, she then went on to pass, uh, correction, she then went on to uh, test herself as a uh, a CPP or a, a PSD operative in Iraq, working as a private security contractor. And thinking, well, I guess thinking that life may be a little less hectic, she then went on to work as a manager within a security firm contracting to the Australian government in one of the offshore immigration detention and processing centres on Christmas Island. She is the author of at least one book that I know of uh, and possibly another one on the way, a keynote speaker, an avid university student and a lover of, all hus- uh, a lo- lover of husky dogs, uh, Narelle Atkins. Welcome to the Wheels Up podcast. Oh, thanks very much, Troy. Sweet. Um, so thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you know, as we were saying prior to recording, it's been some time since we've had the chance to talk. Um, in fact, since we've spoken, so much has actually happened. You know, we've both been and uh, come back from Iraq. Um, you've written a book, uh, probably another one on the way. You've done book tours and interviews. Uh, you've been to Christmas Island. Um, and somewhere in amongst all that, you've managed to to finish a uni, university degree and, and obviously all your family commitments. So how have you found the, the time to fit all these studies and, and activities in, mate? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> um, but I guess once you've uh, worked in Iraq in that kind of high-intensity environment, it's hard to go back to a normal life. So you, you find... Uh, lots of different ways of filling in the time and, and doing things that are a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Your, your time management certainly uh, comes into play there, doesn't it? Yeah, that's for sure. So did I cover most of the, the key points in your CV thus far? I mean, all the highlights, is there, you know, what else have you been up to? Yeah, well, they're, they're the main points. Um, it's now embarking on um, a new new. Um, well, career, I guess, um, yep. when I finish my uni degree and um, finding out what the next challenges are. Okay. What are you actually studying at the moment? 
I'm studying a Bachelor of Science majoring in mathematics and <laughs> law and society. So something completely different. <laughs> wow, it's very left field. Mathematics, you can have that. That's, that, that's not my forte. <laughs> It's okay. one of those sliding door moments when I was younger. It was either go to uni and do a maths degree or um, join the security industry and the, and the army, and I chose the army. So I'm now <laughs> reliving that moment in time and seeing where it leads me. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's two very different um, career paths. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Weird. So let's, um, let's just rewind back a little bit before you actually join the army. Uh, I understand that that like me, you're you're an army brat. Uh, your dad was in the army. Is that is that right? Yeah, dad was uh, an infantry officer, so we moved around a fair bit to all those lovely places like Townsville and mm. Singleton in New South Wales. Um, and we also spent some time in PNG. So oh, wow. I actually quite enjoyed moving around. Okay, and so was was your dad the the driving factor for your military service? Was it like a foregone conclusion that's where you were going? Um, it was never something that I'd planned, but it was always in the back of my mind that it was a really good career option. So when it, when it came time to decide what to do, um, a few factors were involved, but I guess that the main, um, driving factor for joining the army was definitely my, my dad's influence and following in his footsteps, but it was also, you know, an adventure and a career that I knew would be challenging. Yeah. So it must have been a pretty proud, proud moment that uh, when you marched out and, and you, you know you had your family there, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So when our paths crossed, you were actually uh, Captain Joyce within the military police, but you actually enlisted before receiving your commission. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that and which call you you joined to originally? Yeah. So when I first joined the army, I joined as. Um, I went through Kapuka as a soldier and was allocated to Dental Corps, yep. um, which was bizarre because I never even knew dent dentists exists in the army. Yeah. Um, so I, I spent a year being a dental assistant and then the opportunity to join the military police arose. So I um, grabbed it with both hands and um, thoroughly enjoyed my career as a military police um, corporal in the army. Yeah, fantastic. So what, what was the driving factor there? Like, what, what made you want to transfer across the MPs? Well, when I joined the Army, I wanted to do something a, a little bit wary. So the idea mm. of spending my days looking down people's throats um, <laughs> and pulling out teeth and that did not excite me at all. Um, I wanted to be where the action was. Mm. And for females in the Army, to me, the military police was the the... Um, the best way of getting close to the action. Yeah, right. So pulling teeth and looking down gums probably wasn't uh, where the action was at. No, no, no. And in fact, I used to volunteer for cross-country runs and grenade practices, anything to get out of that dental surgery. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So obviously, as I've mentioned a few times already, you completed the, um, the Australian Army Close Personal Protection Operatives course. Uh, at the time, I think it was five weeks of training, is that? Is that right? Yeah, that yeah, five weeks of um of awesome training. Yeah, lots of fun. So, well, how did you find the training? I mean, obviously, I know it's a it's a challenging course, but what aspects do you feel, uh, I guess, individually were tough, as well as what aspects were within a team, and and then also the added pressure of you know obviously being a leader. 
Yeah. Well, as an individual uh, and especially a female, the PT aspect was my biggest focus, especially in the training leading up to even get on the course. Mm. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to get as fit as I could and um, obviously the harder you train, the more prone you are to injuries. Mm. So it was, it was trying to get fit, balance your injuries um, to be able to even get on the course. And then yeah. once, once I'd made it on, um, the PT, it's funny, you train hard, fight easy, they say, and it, it certainly seemed that way. Um, the, the, the PT was tough during the course, but we didn't do as much as what I thought because a lot of it was also focused on the content of being an operative. And on a personal level, um, just all that learning, it was just fantastic and I loved every minute of it. Yeah. Um, I think another good aspect was working with a team we um we we got to learn each other's strengths and weaknesses and we learned how to use each other to um to achieve our missions and goals mm. and um i think as a leader though it was the course seemed to be tougher i don't know if it was but there wasn't just learning everything that you had to do there was also the uh it was also quite mentally draining because if we like we uh, did a couple of missions towards the end or large um, missions towards the end of the course. And as a leader, I was responsible for coming up with the op plan, so mm. the operational order. So in addition to having to do my, my job as a team member on the team, I was also having the after-hours task of writing the complete op order and planning out the mission, which... Um, did get quite mentally taxing and I think as a leader you also um, put a lot of pressure on yourself to go the extra mile because you know that the others are depending on you and you, you can't sort of remain grey and, and um, take a back seat. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I can, I can attest for that. I mean, um, I know uh, looking back on your course, you, you actually had a really great uh, team uh, that, that surrounded uh, surrounded yourself and, and the whole team as a whole was really great um, and I think off the top of my head most of them got through I mean it's been a little while but uh, I know that it's designed that it is to fatigue obviously uh, everyone on the course but then I guess the officers as well have that added um, uh, responsibility of, of as you said going back and doing the planning and the cohort which as you said can be quite draining and, and, and long nights yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so you, you also completed uh, Ronan South Africa uh, close protection training several years post-discharge. How do you feel yes. that that compared with what you'd already done? Um, it was very comparable, uh, although I found the Army was a lot more intensive in terms of, as you said, that fatigue factor. You were fatigued the whole time you were on the course, so you had to fight through that. And I guess the Army course also had more of a war fighting focus, um, a lot of stress simulation. We did a lot of reaction to attack and scenario type training. Um, the Ronan course, it uh, I guess it had a slightly more VIP uh, focus to it. However, the medical training and some of the shooting drills were far superior to to anything we could have 
simulated or done in the army, and that's purely to uh, weapon and range regulations. Um, they also had quite a, a good defensive or individual fighting type skills component in there as well. So I was actually able to take quite a bit from both courses and get that good all-rounded um, training, yeah. Yeah, oh, great. So you, you completed your, your Army CPP training uh, and then you were, you were also given a command position at a, an MP unit, a military police unit. In fact, from my, my understanding, it's a, one of the premier postings for, for MPs um, you know, up in Brisbane in charge of, uh, amongst other things, the, the close protection teams. Um, and you were there for a while, but then the next thing you're sort of in Iraq as a, a private military contractor. So how, how and why did that sort of change come about? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was quite fortunate to be posted to the close protection unit um, within the military. However, what I found is when the Iraq campaign began in around that 2003 time period, um, a lot of my troops were being deployed or being attached to infantry companies and deploying to Iraq to do their close personal protection. However, as an officer in the army, um, they weren't, officers at that time were not getting deployed to Iraq and uh, certainly females were not necessarily being looked at to be attached to infantry companies yep. and it was um it, it was hard to take to watch the guys that i was training to go into iraq go and you're the one left behind um and look if i'd stayed in the army probably i would have ended up going on the team however i couldn't wait years for for that kind of change in in thinking to come about. So I heard about the emerging private security industry and thought, yeah, if, if I want to do this, I've got to take matters into my own hands. So, yeah, I decided to discharge from the army and go and um, join a private army. Yep. No, look, I, I, can, um, I can definitely relate to that. I, I pretty much had a very similar uh, story to that in that, you know, you know, the war had obviously kicked off and uh, we saw other units that were being deployed and, um, you know, we just weren't going anywhere. And I, I think I can understand your frustration, obviously not from the, yeah. uh, the female point of view, but certainly not being deployed. Um, it does. It, you sort of see all these other people moving moving across and you're like, you know, you want to be a part of it. But yeah. Not on board. So, so we, with that... Um, you said, you said the officers weren't being deployed. So within the teams themselves, was it the senior NCOs that the, were running the teams? Is that how it worked? Yeah, you had a senior NCO. At the time, it was a warrant officer and you had two corporals going along. So that uh, senior officer, he, he ran the teams, but he also had a secondary role within the company in that he acted um, as, as the company's senior nco as well so there was they actually had a two-hatted role which was why initially officers uh were not deployed because it would mean they would take on perhaps a 2ic role in a uh, rifle company which 
being an MP was um, <laughs> not embraced initially. <laughs> I couldn't imagine that the grunts would be too happy with that at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, if you were a female to IC in a company, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could well imagine. I mean, look, obviously, the defence has come full circle on that these days, but um, it's still yeah. a very, very slow change, I guess, to, yeah. to, to an act at the moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so tell me about your time in Iraq. You know, who did you work for? What were your duties? Where were you looking? You know, wh- you know, who were you looking after, and, and and kind of where were you based? What, what did you get up to? Um, yeah, so I worked for a couple of companies over there. Um, one of them, Blackwater, um, and another one where we were looking after the Iraqi electoral commissioners. So these were the guys that were organising the first free elections in the history of the country. So it was a, a pretty awesome contract to be on, um, yeah. knowing that these these um, VIPs were deemed Tier 1 targets. So some of them had death threats on them. And um, so it was our responsibility to get them from their home to the workplace so there was um, lots of PSD-type duties within the green zone area. Mm. We also did static security at their workplace and we did lots of trips to the airport along Route Irish mm-hmm. and a couple of missions into the red zone so they could um, give lectures um, to the general public. Yeah, okay. Um, and... I sort of look back on my time over there. So, you know, I remember when I was first traveling over in, in late 2004, uh, I was, I was traveling with two other blokes and we were flying over on an Emirates aircraft and we were heading over to, to Kuwait and, and every 20 minutes or so BBC sort of splashed up a, about explosions in Baghdad and, you know, across Iraq and, and whatever, whatever else. And, and I guess for me, that was a bit of a, a moment that I distinctly recall, you know, okay, this, this is, you know, this is actually happening. You know, I'm, I'm flying on an aircraft into a war zone along with, you know, a plane full of tourists, uh, you know, that are heading over on holidays or back home. Um, but I guess it wasn't really until I was in Baghdad, um, you know, flying from the buy up to the green zone that I actually had one of those, you know, pinch me moments. And, I, you know, and, and went, okay, now it feels like I'm in a conflict zone, you know, with the whole US military machine in, in full swing. So I guess my question is, did you, did you have one of those moments yourself? And, you know, do you, do you recall what it was like for you? Um, it's funny. I've thought about that because there are so many um, surreal moments yeah. from working in Iraq. Um, and I know, I guess when I first went into Iraq, I was, I think I was very mentally prepared for what I was going to do and what was expected of me as a um an operative on the team but i guess that that one moment when you know right this is real is and i know a lot of people have experienced but it was that first first flight into baghdad where the aircraft is circling almost on a 20 cent piece into um onto the landing pad and being told we're doing this so that um, we avoid getting hit by a surface-to-air missile or or something of the sort. And I I think physically feeling the sensation of turning on that dime and knowing that you're doing that so that you don't get blown out of the sky, I think that was when you knew, yep, we're here, this is it. And um, 
game on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned that. It, 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 yeah. As soon as you started talking about it, you, you know, it, it starts rushing back that those memories of doing it. <laughs> and, and I'm yeah. sure that there's plenty of other guys and girls out there that have that have been on that. And as soon as you start saying that that corkscrew, you you like yeah, you you start living that moment. Right there. <laughs> yeah, um, that's for sure. And um, I'm almost certain. Uh, well, I recall going. There was a an aircraft that we flew out, and it had Russian pilots on it. And they did they 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 didn't muck around. They just straight into that dive and straight down. So, yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah, brings uh, back memories. Yeah, it does. So, <clears throat> you know, I speak you know, while we're on Iraq. You know, as with you know most who ventured over to Iraq uh, to contract at, at some stage. You know, at some stage we we roll the dice long enough. Uh, we get bumped or we're involved in an incident or two or or we have other team members who are involved in an incident and it, and it obviously impacts on us. Um, you know, I wasn't immune to this and, and I know that you you were also affected by an incident which unfortunately, as it turns out, has been scrutinised by every expert and, and, you know, every armchair critic that are, that, that's sort of out there. So, you know, I, I kind of have to touch on the, on the Rude Irish incident which occurred in uh, April 2005. Um, you know, I'm sure it's something that you've reflected on long and hard and, and no doubt will stay with you forever. Um, so, you know, would you, would you mind giving us a brief overview of that, that actual incident uh, that I'm talking about and, and the contact um, which occurred so those that are listening can understand what we're talking about? Yeah. So the incident, uh, the team were tasked to um, go to Baghdad Airport, um, of course, along Rude Irish um, now, the team employed low-profile tactics. However, for some reason, they changed tactics. And what happened was while they were driving to Rude Irish, instead of remaining covert and um, blending in with traffic, the team leader decided he'd fire off some warning shots at other vehicles so that they would keep away from him, which is a great tactic if you're running high-profile, but it doesn't work for low profile in soft skin or unarmoured vehicles. Yep. So anyway, he did that and then there was a stoppage on the road. US Army were, was clearing an area of a suspected IED and so the um, all vehicles or all traffic were stopped on that road. Now, rather than the team turn around and go back to the green zone, as per SOPs, they decided that they would wait there for 20-something minutes firing warning shots at other vehicles and essentially identifying themselves as a Western security team. Mm. Um, well, it took 20-something minutes, but eventually they were identified by insurgents and um, they opened fire on them and the, uh, three of the team members were, were killed in that ambush incident. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and like I said, look, there's been a ton of armchair critics and unfortunately it's one of those incidents that... Um, is you know almost used as a, a you know a training video these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean that you know that, that that was obviously pretty tough. You know you lost some some obviously dear friends over that period, and I know that within your your book Mercenary Mum you were quite um, scathing about the the management. Can you can you tell me why you were so critical and how that has affected you? Yeah. Um, the reason I was so scathing of management is because. Um, the team leaders at the time were not being team leaders. They, there was a lot of 
um, drug use, partying, lack of training, um, relaxed attitudes towards um, being a leader, a leader and not taking the job seriously. Mm. And as a person working on that team, obviously I um, wasn't happy with that situation and tried doing what I could to alert management. But unfortunately in, in male-dominated workplaces, you can have a boy club culture mm. um, and it, it's kind of like they closed ranks and it didn't matter that I went to management and said, hey, look, there's a problem here, you need to look into it, there's, you know, people are going to be killed. They wouldn't listen to me because I guess they supported that boys' club culture and didn't necessarily verify people's qualifications and experience. So, um, and, you know, I spent a month, perhaps about a month, probably longer, trying to say there's something going wrong here mm. and not being listened to and and then seeing uh, the ambush fold out before my eyes um, after warning the management a couple of hours beforehand that the team were going to get killed due to the leadership issues. Seeing it happen, it... Um, it, it makes me quite angry that I tried to do everything in my power to let them know what was going on, but no one would take me seriously mm. for whatever reason. Um, and and it ultimately leading to, leading to three people being killed. Yeah. And yeah. I guess I guess the the flow on effect from that is um, that I I'm kind of wary of organisations that don't enforce or have anti-bullying and harassment type policies because it's if you don't have them then your unit is is not necessarily the best people for the jobs and it perpetuates a um a culture that doesn't challenge dangerous practices they just accept it um so yeah, yeah i guess i'm i'm um yeah so I mean, I it, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. It must have been tough at that time. I mean, you said you, you felt like an outsider talking. Do you think because it was a primarily an American team, was it? No, uh, that team was made up of UK, um, one or two American or some Americans, and some Australians. Okay, so it was relatively not multicultural. So, um, yeah. Uh, did Did you find that? I mean, you talk about culture, you talk about bullying, you talk about um, policy and procedures, I guess. Uh, is that, was it difficult, I guess, coming from the army in a leadership position and then going into something like that where, you know, you're trying to push that, you know, uh, across, that message across and say, hey, look, you know, we need to do something about it. And look, I, I, from what I understand, you, you started at a team level and then, and then worked your way up, but you didn't get any... Um, yeah, you didn't really get any traction on that. So did, was that frustrating for you? Um, look, it, it was, it's hard to say because when I first joined the team, I wasn't interested in taking on a leadership role or standing out. I just, I was very aware of being one of only a few females there. I just wanted to keep my mouth shut, do my mm. job and be accepted as a, um, as a good operator. Mm. And when you do that, you're um, wholeheartedly embraced by the team and, you know, you're a great chick, whatever. But it, it's that moment where 
because I have undergone leadership training, I know what's right and what's wrong and what you should and shouldn't do. And it gets to a point, maybe it's when I get my confidence up, whatever, that you start to realise, hang on, what they're doing is really, really wrong. It, and you can keep quiet for only so long, but it's that moment that you open up your mouth. And I think it's more from being a female rather than a leader that suddenly you're turned on because it's okay while you keep quiet, but the moment you have some opinions that might challenge the, the leaders, um, that's when the trouble begins. But I think, yeah, it was because I've learned how to, to speak up, not just for myself but for others, that I, I even opened up my mouth in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah. Okay. So, like I said, you know, everyone, everyone's uh, an expert after the fact, you know. Um, but, you know, what, what do you feel security teams can take away from this incident? Um, and I guess I'm not specifically talking about tactics, you know, we can sit here and everyone can sort of armchair tactics uh, all day and we can all highlight where it went wrong, possibly went wrong and, and what we might do better. But, you know, I guess I'm talking about leading up to the incident as a company, uh, as a team and as an individual, what should security operatives uh, be looking for or, or looking to take away from this, this particular incident? Well, I think as a company, um, you certainly need to verify and critically analyse the skills and the qualifications of the leaders that are that are put in those key positions yep. and then monitor them to ensure that they are actually doing their job. Um, and the same with staff as well. And I think, though, as a team, you know, if your SOPs are being changed for no reason, um, speak up mm. and support and certainly as an individual, support a person that, that speaks up about something if you agree with them. Don't leave them hanging because um, it can have some grave implications if you don't. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree. I mean, there, there may be one team leader, there may be one two I see, but at the end of the day, it's, it's everyone's responsibility within that team if you're a security operative or a um, you know, within PSD teams or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you're you're all involved. You all need to voice your opinions. At the end of the day, obviously, the team leader makes a decision, but um, you know, you do need to voice these sorts of opinions. Yeah, and I think also in the security industry, you know, everyone's brave. That's that's why they've taken on that job. But for some reason, when you raise something that's dangerous, everyone. People seem to think, oh, they're going to think I'm a scaredy cat for raising yeah. this this issue rather than looking at it from the perspective, this is a risk analysis. We're identifying risks. You know, I need to, to speak up, not just keep quiet in case they think I'm a scaredy cat. So it's changing that mentality of you're analysing risk. You're not being a scaredy cat. <laughs> yeah, that, you know what? That's a really good point that you make, actually. I mean, at the end of the day, irrespective of whether you're a PSD, you're a security operative, you're a, whatever title you want to give yourself, we're all about risk, uh, risk management and risk mitigation. So, and that those two terms get sort of bandied around within the industry quite a bit uh, and people sort of tell you they're in mis risk mitigation or risk management, but at the end of the day, they don't necessarily manage risk. Um, mm. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's not just about the sunglasses, the earpieces and looking tough. It's 
It's yeah. about actually that's doing, so true. doing an analysis and going, okay, we need to manage the risk that's out there and, and this is how we do it. So that's a really good point you bring up. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So I just, uh, I just want to go back to Ronan for a minute because I, I might have my timeline incorrectly here, but the Rude Irish incident occurred in April and then you completed your training in July. Is that correct? Your Ronan training? Yeah, uh, July, August, yeah. yeah. So, so how did that affect you on course? And, you know, did you still see this as a, a career that you wanted to pursue after that whole incident? Yeah, it was. And I guess I, um, I completed the, the Ronan course because I'd, I'd heard how good it was. And as a female, I wanted to, to add to my repertoire of skills, once again, trying to be accepted. Um, and I figured the best way of being accepted was to bolster my qualifications. So I, I took on the, the Ronin course because it was um, highly recommended and because I wanted to add that to my repertoire of skills. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, yeah. Did, did you feel it affected you on course? Well, you know, obviously after the incident occurred, you then did the training. Did, did you feel that affected you in any way? Um, I think at that point in time, I was still kind of, um, I guess, numb or pushing the incident aside mm. to to a degree. Um, I think it was all about taking back some control after being powerless to stop that team and um, the the leaders running it. I guess it was about taking back control, getting myself trained up and... Um, and I'd also known that one of the the members that were killed on that team had also completed the Ronan course. So I guess I also wanted to touch base with anyone there if they if they had any questions about how and why it happened. Okay, great. Thanks, Narelle. We might leave it there for episode one, uh, and we'll pick up uh, episode two, talking about your return to Australia and time working with uh, detainees at uh, one of Australia's immigration centres. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, go to iTunes or uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whichever platform. Uh, give us a five-star rating. Leave us some comments. Uh, if you're after uh, any security advice, you can contact us at info at panopticsolutions.com. You've been listening to the Wheels Up podcast with Troy Clayton. For more information, show notes, resources, and subscription options, visit wheelsuppodcast.net. Wheels Up is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network. Until next time, safe travels.